Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse, and today I'm talking to and learning from Dave McKeown. Dave's written a fantastic book called The Self-Evolved Leader. And so why might this be useful for you or your teams? Well, so often managers, this is often the case in startups, somebody starts a business, there's a sole contributor and some helpers, and obviously the the founder has the knowledge, the technical knowledge often, or maybe even the sales knowledge. And so people defer to them. They're the visionary. They understand the product. They understand the customers. And the organization can develop learned helplessness. Even in teams, sometimes people are being promoted because of their core competency is in coding or customer support or, or sales. And again, they get promoted, but Nobody's ever shown them how to be a leader. Nobody's shown them how to coach. In fact, they might not have only worked, they may have only worked for people who were a bit shit at this. And so they mirror what they've seen that's happened to them. They get their team over the line by being heroic, by, by doing the work, by taking on tasks for the team. And so the team develops learned helplessness and this was a great team. It was a high-performing team. And now all of a sudden, as a result of the manager, his team is sort of bumbling along and just scraping by, doing enough, but not being great anymore. And so often I hear people say, well, I, it, would take me, it would take me longer to teach somebody to do it than to do it myself. So I'm going to do it for them. And so these leaders don't bring their teams up. They're not coaches. They're managing. They're micromanaging. And they're doing a chunk of the work. It's like being a player manager in the football team. It's like get off the field and coach from the sidelines. Have a development plan. Have a talent plan. You have to become a self-evolved leader. You have to learn to get out of your way. Because if you don't get out of the way, you're going to stop the organization developing if you're the CEO or, or your team developing if you're the manager or team leader in a team. So a great conversation with Dave. We talk about how he got to where he is and some of the concepts in the book and how to practically put some of those to work. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Dave. I'm sure you will too. Dave McKeown here. I am a leadership speaker and consultant and trainer. I work with leaders and leadership teams to help them elevate their focus, develop their people and get more done. How did you end up doing this? <laughs> it was a, a long winding path, I think. Um, funny enough, long and winding, but one where if you look back, I think I can see the common threads pulled through it. My father, who you know, uh, was a serial entrepreneur back in Belfast whenever I was growing up, which was not a common thing to have happen. And it just twigged a fascination for me really early on in, in my life about 
what does it even mean to start a business and you know make things happen and get people aligned and go in a in a in a common direction and and i think that that just set in motion a series of just inquiries that i had in my own mind about how people work together and what that means and looks like and so you know i went through high school did a period stint traveling and volunteering i went to college and studied business and management i interned with my father who had then become a business consultant at that point out in massachusetts and had the opportunity to to kind of get inside what it meant to to be in the room with with senior leadership teams guiding businesses uh, and I was just fascinated by it all. It, less the business side of like, how do we make money? And more the like human side of how do we all get, you know, rowing in the same direction? And so then I, I went and joined Accenture back in the UK and kind of got a good insight into what it means to be a leader in a big, massive organization. Uh, but my heart was always actually, I realized in smaller, growing, fast growing organizations. So moved over to the United States in 2013, initially joined the family business, which was a company that worked with fast growing organizations to help them scale and did that for four years really earned my uh, stripes there and learned the craft of consulting speaking and training and then about four years ago stepped out on my own and have uh, been on my own journey of working with leadership teams ever since fantastic and is there a particular size you know you said they're small fast growing is there a certain size where you think you've got some insight or special insight or is there a size at which it's just not interesting enough for you Funny enough, I've had the pleasure of working with businesses all the way from two, three million dollars all the way up to fourteen billion dollars, and and as I've seen in all of that, as you know, there are there are periods of growth that organizations get to the top of, and then they realize that there are some changes that need to happen in order to get to the next stage, and a bunch of that's from an infrastructure perspective, but actually a big part of that is from the leaders of the organization at the most senior level, uh, uh, really understanding the extent to which they are either an enabler or a blocker in the next phase of growth for the organization. Some leaders are built for helping startups get off the ground. Some leaders are built for helping get initial uh, growth and scalability into an organization. Some leaders are built for managing much larger complex organizations. And, And there are pivot points that leaders get to in their career where they have to honestly assess, am I willing to make the changes that I need to make to help lead this organization in its next period of growth? Or do I want to stay in this particular pool? And trying to extrapolate that out across an entire leadership team uh, can be interesting, fun, and challenging all at the same time. So what do you do? Um, (laughs) It it all starts with, with everything, which is a trying to provide a mechanism by which leaders can assess truly and and honestly their strengths and weaknesses, their ability to enable or stunt growth, and and to be a a mirror to leadership teams. Mm -hmm. So most of the work that I do is built around strategic planning. Funny enough, the strategic plan, the thing that gets kicked out the other end, is one part of it. But actually what I'm doing whenever I'm working with leadership teams is helping them realize and understanding where they are gelling well as a team, where they're not, where their individual perspectives and how they show up and how they operate in a room is positive and where it's negative and, and helping be in that mirror to say, okay, folks, you've managed to kind of get this strategic plan down on, on paper or on the walls or whatever, but here's what you need to do as a team from here on out to ensure that this gets implemented. Half of that's just 
just from a functional perspective, going out and, and doing it and getting their team to do it. But there's a whole other part of it, which is ensuring that they've got the appropriate drumbeat for implementation built in the other end. And for a lot of leadership teams, particularly more immature leadership teams, and I mean that not from a, an age perspective, but for leadership teams that haven't gone through that, that can be quite a, a challenging aspect for them because for a lot of organizations, it's just like, all right, this is what we're going to do. Let's go do it and let's see what works and see what doesn't work. It's interesting that where you were talking about company outgrowing people, I, I often have CEOs who you know I speak to, the question they've got in their minds is, is the business not growing because I'm in the way? And then you've got other times when, you know, that, you know, I say to teams often, look, the team that gets it to 10 million is often not on the field when we get to a hundred million, you know, and there's that sense of tour of duty, but people won't substitute themselves. No. And because people, I think people aren't, a lot of leaders are not emotionally aware enough to understand that that's okay to get to the point where you're like, I was able to get this to 10 million. And, And that's great that I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. But I see the path down the road and what's required of me from a behavioral shift or from a skill set shift. I'm not prepared, nor do I think that I can make that. That takes a a lot of deep emotional uh, awareness and a uncoupling of your success from your own ego. And that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do. And so they just think, well, we got here, so we'll just do more of that and that'll get us there. But as Marshall Goldsmith said, what got you here won't get get you there. And, And that's so true. And whenever I work with leaders, it's funny about it third of them will recognize the need for change and will say, you know what? I think I can do that. Let's get there. Uh About a third of them will recognize the change on what's happening. And over time will eventually say, I don't think I'm really good enough to get there. And about a third of them just never, never, just never dawns on them. They never see it. The writing's never on the wall until somebody's in the room with them. It's like, look, you're not making this shift. And so we need to, we need to do something about that. Do you think it's better to not notice or better to notice? You know, like there are times when I sometimes I think, what if I was the type of person who went home and just put the TV on and watched EastEnders and then went back to work the next day? Like, doesn't that feel like it's a simpler thing? Like, you know, isn't there, isn't there something, isn't there something sort of, you know, I mean, it must come as a shock, but at least it doesn't come, it, at least there's not a long drawn out process of coming to a realization that you're not the right person for the bus anymore. For sure. Living a life of uh, being oblivious to stuff, I think, can be quite quite nice. I think the, the problem is, I think for most people, even, even the most outwardly emotionally underdeveloped, I think there's always something that the subconscious that just tugs at you. And you may not even be able to put the words to it, but it just it just tugs at us. And it comes out in, in reactionary ways. You know, I've I've seen a lot of leaders who their behavior in how they lead their team and specifically how they work with their senior leadership group ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, the organization, let's say, for example, is requiring them to adopt a much more strategic, longer-term output. But as a leader, they have been constantly, their whole life, they've been leading in the trenches, in the weeds. They're stuck at runway level. It's very difficult for a leader to that spent their whole life being successful in the weeds and at runway level to elevate their focus to something about a medium and, and long-term perspective. And I've seen leaders that know that that's the shift that they need to make, but yet are just constantly yanking the team back into the tactical and action-driven conversations and ultimately becomes, rather than trying to make that shift, it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy for them. Yeah, we've got, uh, you know, we work with a number of clients who, who have similar challenges. We've got 
CEOs who like doing, you know, the visionary, like doing new product development. And so then structurally it's like, okay, well, how do you create an organization which gets, lets them do the thing that they're great at Mm -hmm. and get them out of the four days a week that they were spending, not enjoying their day. And then we've got other people who are in fast growing businesses who, you know, they're used to doing all the delivery. Right. I was talking to a CEO of a fast growing business the other day and he said, what do I do with my time? (laughs) (laughs) I just, he, he, what he was doing is he, he was filling his day with one-on-ones because he didn't quite know what else to do with his time. Right. And that was the only way that he could control what was, what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a real commonism. I'm sure you've seen many times dynamic, particularly for a very entrepreneurial founder owner around whom the vision for the organization sits. They're the one that comes up with genius ideas or new approaches to stuff. And that's, that's what got them to whatever stage that they got to, but that's not a scalable business. You can't, you can't scale the innovation and creativity off of one person. You've got to build it into the organization. And Apple is an interesting example. Steve Jobs, the first time he got kicked out, the vision was so centered around him they ultimately didn't know how to innovate once he left. And then whenever he came back, he realized that that wasn't a, an appropriate, ongoing, scalable way to build a business. So he tried to institute innovation and creativity in the organization as a whole to allow the company to continue to innovate without him being that front-facing visionary leader. Well, it's it's interesting you mention that because I think, I think sometimes the organization develops a way of dealing with those ideas. Hmm ignoring them and hoping them they'll go away or even even deliberately working against them right um you know so you end up with this sort of dysfunctional business and and i think a part of that is because there hasn't been a codified or solidified way to approach new ideas and, and new directions and for a particularly entrepreneurial leader there's this sense of i've just got to get this out there and then we'll start moving and it's we'll start going in a direction the rest of the organization's like well, we're actually delivering everything else that's going on so how do you build a process that allows an an, an innovative creative leader to drop ideas into a machine that's going in a way that doesn't feel like you're sticking a, a wrench in the wheel but actually you're adding a piece that will continue will help the organization continue to move forward and, and that's a, a big shift for particularly founder owners I've got, I've got one client who I said, I think his job title should be chief disruption officer because actually mostly it's about spanners um, and, and keeping him away from the rest of the organization. But it's, I was on a panel discussion with uh, some other coaches at the weekend. And one of the other coaches was saying somebody in his team had committed to do something, mm. but didn't believe it. So had gone away and done it half arsed so that it didn't work so that he could be right overall. And so actually what often happens is those, those organizations where there's that sort of visionary, right. there isn't the muscle in the business for people to say you're wrong to have that conflict that you need. So, you know, one of the guys who used to work for me, Scott at Pier One, you know, we'd have a weekly meeting and he'd say, Dom, all great ideas, but none of them for today. <laughs> right. And that was it. <laughs> and he said, you know, if it, was a, if it was a good enough idea, I'd bring it back the following week. If it wasn't a good idea, that I would, I would have another one and it would be fine. For, for sure. Or like the rule of like three times, whenever, the, whenever you've said it three, it's probably starting to gain a little bit of traction, but until then, it's like... 
Excellent. Yeah, we'll we'll keep that on on file. And and but I think you're, the point that you're hitting on is actually an important one, which is how do we as a leadership team come in and actually have adult adult conversations that end up in the best result for the team and the organization, rather than placating you know one particular leader's ego in all of that. And unfortunately, too often that is this sort of sense of like how can we how can we sandbox that innovative leader in a way that allows us to keep moving forward, rather than saying how do we actually build a process that takes the good from that and and allows us to evaluate it in a way that's productive. Part of the biggest reason why the rest of the organization doesn't want to implement new ideas is because it causes people to have to do more work. And what's the one thing that we're constantly trying to conserve is our time and our energy and our focus. And so whenever you know an innovative visionary person is going to see a new idea and go, brilliant, this is going to unlock the world, everybody else looks at that and goes, that's another you know 20 hours a week for me on top of the 60 that I'm already working. So rather than starting from there, say, okay, how do we actually, honestly, as a, as a leadership team, come together and say, we have so many, you have so many great ideas. We can do three of them. Choose three. We'll do these three for this quarter. And then you know what? We can do the next three the next quarter. And and trying to find a way to fit that in, in a way that's not just paying lip service to it, but then trying to find a way to pull the rug out from underneath it. That's when you know you've got a good decision-making process that's scalable. Have you got a system for managing those three projects this quarter? Yeah, part of what I talk about in the self-evolved leader is how do you, building a vision with your team's one thing. How do you then build an implementation rhythm that allows you to ensure that you're getting towards that vision? And a part of that is setting out the high-level strategic objectives for this quarter and then building a process that says, if something changes this quarter, how do we evaluate a, a new idea? Because most, most teams don't understand that, that they get together to, to kind of assess how things are trucking along, but they don't know how to evaluate something new. And so it's either a separate meeting or it's a separate side project or, you know, it's a separate discussion. And so rather than doing that and or ignoring it, just build it into that monthly and quarterly review. What's our priorities? What are we achieving? What are we not achieving? Where Where's our resource constraints? What new thoughts or perspectives or ideas or opportunities do we currently have? And allowing somebody to say, well, you know, the market's changing this way. Or I've had a customer that said this, or I've had this great idea. And having the teams collectively kick that around a little bit, beat it up a bit, and then say, okay, if we were to adopt this, what has to go? What, what has to shift? What has to change? We don't we don't negotiate enough in our teams the stuff we've got to let go of. We just put more on and more on and more on. And then what happens is the stuff that falls out the side, there's no there's no intentional decision about it. It's just this, it's just the stuff that people don't want to do. And so having that intentional discussion that says we as a group of people only have so much capacity. So if we're gonna put something in the top, something the bottom's gonna go, what is it? What do you want it to be? That's a decent discussion to have. How do you help these adults have these difficult conversations? Um, put a framework and a set of boundaries around the conversation. Here's what happens. There's two, two extremes of leadership teams that uh, operate in which this isn't happening. One extreme is they come together and they sort of look at each other and they're like, well, what, what are we here to talk about? And somebody says, oh, well, you know, there's this problem on the warehouse floor. Or this customer has a problem. Then they spend a bunch of time talking about that. And then they're like, okay, we're at the end of our meeting. That was great. Uh, okay, excellent. We'll see you next week. And it's just this weird, unstructured debate about whatever's latest and loudest for the team. The other extreme is overly agendaized, overly just reams of data. You know, everybody's in a room and here's everything that you need to know about everything that's going on and and there's no debate and there's no decisions that are made i what i find often in those is is that 
people will, you know, they get a 20 minute slot or a 30 minute slot. And what they do is they say how busy they've been over whatever the period they're reviewing. So this is, a, this is how busy I've been over the last week. It's like politicians filibustering, right? right? I'm, I'm going to use up all of my 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes so that nobody can ask me any difficult questions. And, and if I don't ask any difficult questions, like there's this sort yes. of, there's this sort of, um, I don't know, band of brothers, right? Like if we, if none of us ask each other difficult questions, we'll all get away with n- nobody's in our shorts. It's like fake harmony. It's just brilliant to watch. It is. It's like elongating this, you know, the success of the of the period of time, and then just sort of folding in. Then this thing happened, but then it was all good. And you just sort of like, you know, just wrap in the the stuff that really needs to get talked about. But you're right. It's like if I save questions to the end, use up all of my time, even better, go two minutes over my time. Then there's no time for questions. Nobody wants to ask any questions anyway. We have primed people not to ask questions by saying, "Are there any questions?" To which the answer is always no and so (laughs) you know the balance is then in between those two so how do we ensure that we are making the best use of our time collectively together people talk all the time about how they hate meetings they don't hate meetings they hate bad meetings because actually a well-run meeting can be one of the most productive ways that you can spend your time they're just not well run so finding that balance of having a clear focus for the meeting are we are we at a tactical level are we at a strategic level are we talking about processes are we talking about people like being very clear about what we're there to talk about so that folks heads are primed and having clarity around even just things like okay this agenda item is are you telling me this because i need to know this are you telling me this because you need my opinion? Are you telling me this because you want me to help you make a decision? Like a lot of times leadership teams don't even know what I'm there for. What, why, like, what are we doing in this moment? So just being really clear on that, like this is, I'm letting you know this because the organization should know, or I'm sharing this with you because it's an issue that I want to solve. Here are my two options. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll still make the final decision. Or this is something that's important enough for us as a team to talk about and kick around and we're collectively going to make a decision on it. Just being clear on those things can can really ramp up the effectiveness i often ask a question at the end i might be in a session with people and i'll say how did you rate the meeting session somebody will say five and then i'll say well david why didn't you do something about that why have you sat here and not said anything for the last hour it's just like people sit there passively whilst people waste their time. I know. Isn't that incredible to think that you could sit there and you'd be thinking, this is not, this is dumb. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? I think we should do this. And just to sit there and, and rather than, you know, address it and say, hold on, you know, this would be helpful for me or I need some context around this, you know, just agitating leaders to understand that we didn't just call you here out of like our own goodwill. Like we're trying to like help you run this business, like be an active member and a participant in this, be a co-conspirator in our success. And and I think that here's the thing, people stay silent because it doesn't cause them to put a stake in the ground. And it means that they, whatever happens in that meeting, they can go out and go, eh, well, I, you know, I didn't get to say what I wanted to say and went in this direction. And it's just easier, it's easier to renege on your responsibility by just being quiet. And I think, you know, we've got to call that out and, and say to folks, look, silence is complicity. Like if you are not speaking up, the assumption is you're in full throttled, wholehearted agreement on the direction that we're going in. And it will be expected that when we leave that room, that you have that level of support. And that kind of gets people to go, okay, right. If you're expecting me to support it, then I best actually stick my hand up and say something. The other thing I think is fascinating is we spent two days with a leadership team a couple of years ago about whether it was reasonable to do email whilst in a meeting. And the reason it took two days is because some people 
spent basically five days a week, back to back, eight hours a day in meetings. And they couldn't send or read email. Right. And so the team agreed that that wasn't acceptable. And if you're in a meeting, no email, phone off, laptop off. Right. Then that might force you to have more interactivity. So they ended up with this rule, which is if you're in it, you have to participate. I love that. And then that hopefully would have led to another conversation, which is why are we in meetings eight hours a day, five days a week? (laughs) Because there's surely some paring down of that that you can do, you know? It's just a whole lot of meetings before the meetings and ensuring everybody's aligned before we go present to another group and then sub-meetings after that. And and I think a lot of that all, all goes back to that underlying issue, which is people don't feel comfortable to literally voice their opinion, their their perspective in one setting and having that discussion. There needs, there's a lot of politicking that needs to happen and, and go on. And, you know, finding a way to pare down your communication within your team and your organization will save a huge amount of time. So when, why, why the book? Why the self-evolved leader? What's the genesis of this? A couple of things. One, I'd, I'd wanted to, to write a book for some time. In the world in which we live, having a book is is a way to make your mark and make your stamp on what you believe on a particular topic. But secondly, I, I also wanted to provide something really helpful and useful for, for anybody that picked it up. And for those leaders in particular who wanted to take control of their own development, but maybe didn't have the opportunity in their own organizations. I'd written down this phrase whenever I started writing it, which was between the philosophical and the practical lies progress. And I didn't want it to be like a huge number of business books, which is let's take one topic, one theme and spin 12 different ways in which you can look at it over 12 chapters. I wanted it to be, you know, have real good meaty stuff in there. But similarly, I didn't, I didn't want it to be an overly academic textbook. And so I wanted to provide here a bunch of really good ideas and here's how to implement it. I didn't want to come back a year later, two years later and go, well, here's the guidebook to implement everything that I just said in there. I wrote it for any leader that had a desire to grow themselves, who knew that it's up to them to develop their leadership um, skills and disciplines and and mindset and and to give them a a really clear roadmap to making that happen. And are there some tools or exercises in the book that we should tease people with? The penultimate chapter is actually a full laid out 15 week program. So you read through the book and you're like, I want to put this in place. And that penultimate chapter walks you through that. The behavioral shift that I'm trying to um, help folks make with the book is to move away from getting stuck in this thing that I call a cycle of mediocrity. Our teams are not delivering terrible or bad work, but we're not delivering our best work. And a lot of it's the stuff that we've talked about here. But in a world that's so urgent, where everything needs to get responded to immediately, where we've given permission to anybody to interrupt us at any time and assign whatever level of priority they want to, our leaders in a desire to move efficiently and effectively towards things have a tendency to lead through small acts of heroism. So rather than giving their team room to, to come up with their own solutions, they just say, I do this, or worse, they'll leave it there and I'll do it. And that all comes from a, a decent, good place of, of belief of that's what their job is uh, as a leader. But over time, when you're constantly saving the day for your team, you build learned helplessness in them. So eventually they, they just stop thinking for themselves. If you're just going to come tell me what to do, or you're going to correct it for me anyway, or you can jump in and save the day, why would I bother thinking for myself? Which disempowers them and, and leads to more frustration and a bottleneck for the leader. And 
at some point the leader looks around and says, well, what happened to this team that used to be so self-sufficient and used to be able to go their own way? To which my response is almost always, well, you've got to look in the mirror because you're at least 50% of this equation. So the, the key behavioral shift is away from that urgency, heroic, learned helplessness cycle towards taking a step back and saying, okay, where, where is the long-term direction of where we're going? How do we co-create a vision with our team? How do we build an implementation rhythm to get there? And how do I develop the leadership disciplines that I need to steer the ship in order to, to chart the course? And so there's tons of really practical lessons at, every, at the end of every chapter. There are uh, some key takeaways that folks need to go implement. That's fab. I, I could see it being the example description you give there is very, very typical in a startup, you know, because I am a smart person and I've got, I don't know, what is it now? Somebody in their late forties, early fifties, spent maybe 12 to 20 years working in an industry, spins out a business. They've got all the knowledge. They're hiring people who are, who are less knowledgeable about the thing and the customers and the process than they are. And so almost by default, that parent-child relationship gets kicked off. Mm-hmm. And then that business probably, if it was one person, gets stuck at about one and a half million. If there's a couple of founders, it gets to maybe two and a half. And then you've got another shift at sort of 10 million where now we have to put in, you know, we've put in a leadership team, but at this point, 10 million, the CEO is has to step out of his own way because he owns something still. He owns sales or he owns marketing, he owns delivery, he owns tech. And now he needs to hire somebody who's better at that thing than he is or she is. And that's hard. Or you're in a bigger business and somehow this team used to function and you come in as the manager and you've taught them learned helplessness. I think it's very prevalent in the startup world. I think it's more prevalent in the the larger organization world as well than we maybe want to think or or assume that there are leaders everywhere who are unconsciously preventing the growth and development of their people because they don't they, they can't get their ego out of the out of the way. They claim that they don't trust their team or that their team won't move fast enough or that I'm just going to have to fix it anyway. All of those are more about the individual leader than they are about the people that work for them. Yeah, or, or the other one I hear commonly is it's going to take me twice as long to teach them how to do it than if I do it myself. So there's this sort of focus on the short term. I think there's something there about ego and not wanting to give up that knowledge or that ability because some somehow your your self-worth is is anchored in you being the best person in the team. So many leaders that's where they believe that their value is it's in in jumping in and saving the day for the team because they have knowledge or a certain expertise and and if somebody else had that then I'm not useful. I'm not valuable, which is the complete opposite actually. That's where you should be getting because whenever you're able to do that then you can build a scalable team that's going to you know leave a leadership legacy for you and then you get to go on and tackle the next problem. But we're so behaviorally driven by how our ego shows up that it just gets in the the way you know even just the the notion of a leader saying i don't i don't know like even that like there's so few leaders that would would confidently step sit in a room and go i don't know enough about this to have a to have an opinion because we believe that that means that we're somehow not valuable in what we do but actually that's curious that curiosity is is the biggest value that you can bring we were talking earlier about the people that don't realize Right. So, you know, you get it, you've got your team, you're coaching your team, your team, a high performing part of the organization. You've got other bits of the business where that's just not happening. How do you, as the leader who can see that as the problem, get involved? Yeah, I'm a big believer in giving 
giving people the opportunity to evaluate and understand their own behavioral liabilities first of all you know that's we've got to give folks the opportunity to to see that in order to help play that out you know engaging in that adult adult conversation with them getting them to reflect on things that are happening not necessarily initially being overly prescriptive but you know doing postmortems after a project is always a good way to do it you know share with me what went well and what didn't work so well and if they go well this didn't work so well and they they hit on that thing that you're thinking about you're like awesome they're aware enough of that okay glad you saw that impact what can we do to 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 work on that what what help and support that do you need some folks will never see that or they'll never want to put that out there for their for their own ego and i think at at some point then saying to somebody, well, this is what I've observed. Um, like, do you see that that could be an issue? And getting them to go, yeah, maybe, no, okay. And sometimes you got to play that conversation out a, a couple of times before they go, I, I can really see it now. And sometimes you play it out a couple of times and they, they just like, they just don't, they may pay lip service to it, but they don't understand it. it it's like that sliding scale of like compassion and empathy towards prescriptive tough feedback not that they necessarily sit on the end of the, the of a sliding scale but at some point the the balance has to reset a little bit where you're looking somebody in the eyes and not losing the compassion and the empathy but you got to be a bit more prescriptive and say well I, i've noticed this pattern of behavior a number of times and it's becoming problematic that then is usually the final opportunity for somebody to go yeah okay i can see that that's an issue let's do something about it uh, but but a lot of leaders don't want to get to that difficult part of the conversation because it's hard it's tough you know we don't like difficult conversations well and and, and there was some work from gallup that said you know a players can te- know inside an organization that they're a players but the c and the d players all think they're above average uh, there's a massive lack of awareness for sure and you know and then it plays the other way as well that you mix those a players and c players into your statistical study it shows that 70 to 80 percent of every leader thinks that they're an effective leader whereas it's like 40 to 50 of their employees percent think that they're an effective leader and so there's just this there's just this massive blind spot and i think that that's an important thing to try to help folks address you know the the only way that we can truly change our behavior is if we understand the problems with it and if we've got blind spots because of our ego then that's really hard to to do but there are just there are always folks that they'll get to a point where they just refuse to see it and that's okay too like that's okay that doesn't make them a bad person but it does mean that you might have to find something else for them to do in the organization or outside the organization because because it, it it just won't work within the the context of what you're trying to you're trying to put together have you got anything have you got any tools there around that sort of turning managers into coaches in your toolbox Maybe they're in the book or maybe they're in a different book. I don't know. No, there's a, there's a chapter in there. I talk about in towards the end of the book, uh, the leadership disciplines, five key leadership di- disciplines that any manager or leader should develop in order to be successful. And first of all, the reason I call them disciplines is because I got a little bit fed up of that age old debate about whether leadership skills are hard or soft skills. You know, people say, oh, well, leadership skills are soft skills. They're hard to train. They're hard to assess against, hard to develop on, hard to practice. And I'm sitting here thinking that's not true at all. Like you absolutely can assess against, you know, whether somebody's a good um, communicator. You can absolutely give them a set of tools to go practice that. I think that in calling those soft skills, we're giving ourselves a way out. 
So I started talking about them as disciplines because we understand that a discipline can be can be built. There's one key discipline which is around coaching for high uh, performance or supporting high performance, and th- and that is about moving from that directive perspective of jumping in and saving a day, telling people what to do, towards giving them the space to evaluate their own solutions and and pick a course of action that they want to go on. So very much a, a, a big part of of what's in there. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever come across a company called NextJump, but one of the things I I, I went to went and visited them in London pre-lockdown and they one of the things they do there is they they get feedback about what they're like you know if you're a tennis player your left hand is probably your weaker shot right or or your backhand is your weaker shot so what they do is they get they get feedback on what their backhand is right and they get feedback on what their backhand is when it pertains to their to their role so you know you were talking there about uh, communication. So one of the things they do is they do these tours and the people who, the people who take you around their business are people who've been told that they're not very good speaking in public. Oh, wow. And so they get, there's a captain and a coach and a cup and a left hand and a right hand woman or man. And the idea is that you're put into a role where you have to develop the skill, hmm. but they call it above the waterline so that it's not revenue impacting. Love that. And and that what a great safe space to practice and to develop that. Yes. Whereas I think that that too often we don't have that opportunity there because everything's revenue or customer related or everything's going to be important. So I don't get, you know, it makes me feel scared to practice that thing because I'm, I'm just playing not to lose. I'm not going to try to be awesome at this. I'm just going to try to be just good enough that we don't, that I don't screw it up. Yeah. I love that idea of giving folks that opportunity to practice that. And, and I think that's the, a mindset that really does develop a culture of growth and learning and, and meeting the person where they are and not, so much of folks' feelings around the discussions about developing leadership skills is is all based around inadequacy. Like, oh, I'm not good enough about with this, and I'm not I'm not strong about that. And rather than that, like, let's lead with the reality that this has got nothing to do with who you are as a person. There's nothing morally or ethically right or wrong about whether you're a good communicator or you can have difficult conversations. Well, but it's if you want to grow and develop and 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 have this holistic perspective of who you can be as a person then why wouldn't you want to work on that? Why wouldn't you want to, you know, try to try to shore up some of those backhands? Yeah, totally. Um, before you were doing this out on your own, you were working with Inc. Magazine on their sort of Inc. 5000. What, did you work with any clients where you thought, God, that was just, you know, they had an amazing story or that a great, maybe it was in one of your other, other clients. I'm just thinking, have you got some war stories? that, you know, were sort of evolutionary in terms of developing the concepts in the book? I had a, a really interesting client last year as a result of the pandemic, and there were a ton of folks that were, were pivoting at the time. Uh, these guys were a food delivery company for service-based businesses. Big, big, big organization, had a, had a big reach. And the majority of their business was restaurants and other food service businesses, which of course on a click of a switch just disappeared. A hundred to zero in three and a half seconds. Yeah. Like super fast. And they had a real fledgling B2C market, really, really small. They were just experimenting with it. And within a week, they were able to stand up and ramp up, basically retrain their entire system of drivers and and delivery uh, folks and in their warehouse to like to deal with the difference of a of a consumer ordering you know 40 different things rather than a restaurant ordering 
40 of the same thing. And, and within a, a week, they were able to start clawing back uh, some of the revenue that they had lost as a result of the pandemic and, and actually ended up basically splitting even by the end of it all. It was just phenomenal to watch. And, and I think that there was a combination of just the ability to get into a room, look at the problem, debate some ideas on how to solve it, get really clear on who was responsible for implementing, and then having a very short feedback loop. So, you know, crisis management's all about short feedback loops. And so they were just constantly tracking the progress, seeing what was working, and it really did propel them over over last year. And they should see the restaurant market come back as well. Yeah, and that's the thing. So now they've got this whole other aspect, part of their business that they've been kind of looking at and wanting to pursue, but just didn't quite have the resources, the plan to do it. And then they were uh, out of necessity. They're like, oh, we've got to focus on this. And and they were able to grow that business. And like you said, now the other side of the business is coming up. And so it was like this accidental innovation brought around by the constraints that were placed on them, which uh, I think often is a is a really interesting place where innovation comes from. It's like so often people think that innovation is like, well, what, what's the blue sky thinking out there? Sometimes it's like, here's the constraint. How do we how do we innovate and succeed within that that boundary? Yeah, I, and I, it well, and then it's it looks a bit like Jim Collins' return on luck, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not sure the pandemic was lucky for anybody, but there's an opportunity, and you know, for every company like your client, there'll be the other ones that took too long, didn't respond didn't put in crisis management, you know, didn't double down and didn't get the success. Just put their fingers in their ear and just went, this will all be over, over soon. Or I did see it particularly early on, a lot of folks that led with too much certainty that were like, we've been through crisis before, we'll go through this one, it'll be fine, we'll just continue doing what we're doing, don't worry about it. And it was kind of, you know, I started to, to see some of that come around. And like, I remember maybe a day or so after over in the States, some of the lockdown orders came in. I got a couple of emails from clients that were from other service providers that were saying things like, we're going to make this our greatest month ever. We're going to, you know, this is going to be fantastic. And I'm thinking, you have no idea what's going on right now. And I think that there's a sense of where folks succeeded was adopting that sense of, hey, this is this is not something that we've ever seen before. Let's approach it with a sense of curiosity and 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 also maybe vulnerability. Like, hey, this is tough and we don't know what's going on, but let's not freeze. Let's let's try to find a way to to turn this around uh, for us. And I think more of those organizations are finding themselves now a little bit more in the front foot. Yeah, I spoke to Jack Stack, who wrote Great Game of Business, just as we were rolling into this, and he said, "Dom, this is my seventh Black Swan event. Right. We've got five hundred, we've got five hundred million dollars in the bank. Right. Every single time we have a recession, we double in the next five years. Bring it on!" Right, and and super smart, right, for him. But how many business leaders are are, are thinking this is my seventh one, and I still didn't learn the lesson of like having <laughs> enough? Like, well, honestly, there's some folks that were in that situation. And you're just thinking, "Hi, hi." Well, I spoke to a guy last week, and he said. We had a massive war chest, which we don't have anymore because basically we kept the whole team sitting around doing nothing. Right. We didn't, because they're like family. Yeah. And and so, you know, now saying, with hindsight, we probably might have managed this differently now that it's, two, it's nearly two years on 
or 18 months on rather than we thought it might be six months or nine months or whatever it was. And so, yeah, people took very different decisions. Yeah, they did. And, and you know, I don't envy any of those decisions that folks had to make. You know, people's lives, livelihoods are at, at stake and that's a, a real hard and tough place to, to be. And it'll be interesting what the history book says, particularly from a leadership and business perspective. You know, I, I can imagine the next few years, the case studies that'll come out of some of the, you know, big academic universities will be really interesting to see what perspective and mindset it was that allowed those organizations to, to succeed. Dave, what is it you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? Like how early? Like childhood early? <laughs> Whatever comes to mind. If I hadn't known that Manchester United were going to come back from 1-0 down to win the 1999 European Championship, hence um, achieving a historic treble in, in British football, I probably would have put a fiver on it or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know the, the the one thing that this might sound cliche but it, it, it is true as i get into older years is I, I used to think that i knew everything and I, I used to think that i was you know just put me in a room and i'll make it i'll make it happen and the older that i get the the less sure that i am but i'm so confident in in, in that unsureness you know and and, and i think that the more that we approach life as a, an opportunity to explore and grow and, and learn more about ourselves and the people that are around us and the, the things that are important to us, the better place that we we end up. So I think that would probably be what I would tell my younger self and what I tell myself on a, on a regular day. <laughs> the more you learn, the less you know that you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. That's, that's great. That's a good place to be. <laughs> Brilliant. Dave, what other than the self-evolved leader, what should be in our holiday reading? What should we take with us? Um, I really enjoyed, sorry, I'm just looking at my bookshelf here. I really enjoyed over the last year, I read, uh, number one, a book called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, uh, which was released pre-pandemic and talked all about how to build a successful gathering. And she talked about all the way from big conference down to meetings, down to like social events and dinner parties and, and just the key components of, of building a good gathering. And there's some pretty counterintuitive perspectives that she has in there around guest lists and timing and it's you know if somebody who, who facilitates meetings as a, a living it really um interested me i think it's it proved very important to how to do it in a virtual world and i think for a lot of organizations who are going to try to struggle with how to do it in a hybrid world i think there's a lot of really good stuff in there from her uh, and then the second book i'll uh, recommend is a book called reinventing organizations by a guy called frederick laloux which was just fascinating, a little bit academic in perspective. And, you know, I'm not sure I agree 100% with all of his findings, but a really interesting way to look at a, a decentralized organizational structure. Any others? What are you reading at the minute? I am reading at the minute. I have Adam Grant's new one on the go. Um, and I'm also reading a book called Chatter by a guy called Ethan Cross, which is all about how to deal with the kind of constant stream of consciousness that we have going on in our brain and, and how to deal with that in a, in a way that honors it, but allows us to not get drawn into the cycles of, uh, uh, of language that we tell ourselves. Fab. Dave, it's been absolutely fab talking to you today. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It was a great chat.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.